This morning we, uh, we're going to begin a new series. To be honest with you, it's beginning in a way that even I didn't expect. But we're going to begin a new series that's going to take us through uh, quite a few weeks called Reboot and Rebuild. It's more than a series. It is actually the theme for our church for the entire year of uh, 2021. This is going to be the year that we reboot and rebuild. But I want to kick that off with this series. Through the series, we're going to look at a very uh, uh, wide variety, I should say, of scriptures that talk about renewal and starting over. And then we're going to end with a study of Nehemiah, who was the, one of the greatest rebuilders of all time. The reason for the series is obvious. We've been through a terrible year. We've all suffered and experienced loss. Every one of us has been angry and hurt and confused. We feel like we've not been treated fairly. The pandemic lasted much longer than I expected. I remember sometime during the summer in a school board meeting, Mr. Truett started talking about his plan for starting school in the fall. He was talking about remote learning and he was talking about protocols and pandemic preparations. And, and I remember thinking, no, you don't have to worry about that. By the time school starts, this is all going to be over. And of course, obviously it wasn't and it's still not. The racial conflict that our nation faced this year was heartbreaking. It was difficult to watch the rioting and the violence. And in our own congregation, the, the lightning strike really set us back this year in a number of ways. And I know that that didn't seem like a big deal to to many of you, but for me, it was a very stressful time. I was trying to figure out how to keep things going as smoothly as we could, but we didn't have any equipment, so we couldn't live stream. Uh, without live streaming, we didn't want to have in-person worship, and then only half the church gets to worship and the other half doesn't, and so I spent many hours every week recording and, video and editing videos so that we could all have online worship, and we spent our time negotiating with the insurance companies and coordinating repairs and dealing with the fact that everything was on back order and we replacing equipment. It wasn't an easy time. It, it really was a difficult experience. Then our ministry assistant, Carla, had to resign due to some serious health issues. And until then, I had no idea how much I had come to depend on our ministry assistance and how little I actually knew about all they had been doing for us. Then it was election season. The political rhetoric was absolutely unbelievable. Even the news media gave up all attempts at pretending that they were unbiased and they just joined in the name calling and finger pointing and yelling. Then Lisa and I got the virus 
And I don't think I've ever been so sick. Through all that chaos, it seemed that everyone in the world just kept getting more and more frustrated, fatigued, angry, and mean. No one was talking anymore. We were all just yelling instead. Our families, our community, our church, and our nation suffered greatly last year. And much of the pain was worse than it had to be because we acted so ugly to each other. Then, this past week, our Capitol building, the People's Building, was attacked. A selfish, foolish mob breached and ransacked the building, destroyed property, interrupted the democratic process, terrorized hundreds of people. Now we've got new stuff to fight over. Now we're fighting over who was really responsible for all of that. The bottom line is it doesn't matter who was in the crowd. The crowd was wrong. And this craziness has to stop. As a nation, as a church, maybe as individuals, we need a reboot. We need to work together to rebuild. This morning, I want to show you where all that begins. Everything else we're going to talk about over the next few weeks has to start here. Until we get this part right, none of the rest of our efforts will make any sense. If we're going to be able to move forward together, we have to remember what matters the most. This morning, I want us to consider together what matters the most. If you like to follow the event in the Bible app, we do have that set up for you so you can follow along there. If you have your copy of Scripture with you, I want to invite you to look with me in Mark chapter 12 at verse 28. Mark chapter 12, we're going to begin at verse 28. We need to consider together what matters the most. We feel pulled and pushed and tugged from all sides these days. Everybody thinks their point of view is most important, and everybody's telling us what to think and what to feel and what to do, and it's just exhausting. So this morning, I want us to, to be able to focus, to be able to say, this matters, that doesn't. We need to answer the question, what matters the most? Mark chapter 12, beginning at verse 28. One of the scribes came up and heard them disputing with one another. Now, that's kind of a, an abrupt beginning to our story. Don't worry a whole lot about that, that part. It's just it's setting the context. Jesus has been talking with um, some Pharisees. And this scribe comes up 
and he uh, kind of interrupts the conversation, you know, he hears what's going on, and that was the way they learned, that was the way they taught each other. It was ask a question, get a response, ask a question, get a response. And so these theologians, the, the Pharisees and the scribes and all those guys, they would stand around for hours on end sometimes asking questions and getting responses and challenging one another. And that's what was happening. Jesus was a part of that conversation and the, the scribe comes up and he, he hears them talking and he kind of gets some interest in what they're doing. And so it says that um, in, in the last part of that verse, it says that he answered them well. He noticed, this scribe noticed that Jesus was answering the Pharisees well. And so he asked him, what commandment is the most important of all? The Old Testament has within it over 600 commands there are a whole lot of do-nots and almost as many do's. <laughs> there are a lot of commandments. And so there are actually so many of them that the Pharisees eventually kind of got into a, um, a practice that would, they thought would be helpful to people. They said, there's no way you can remember all these over 600 rules and regulations. So here, we'll, we'll set aside this group, and this group is the most important ones. So if you just learn these and work on these, uh, then, then, you know, that'll be, that'll be good enough. The, the problem with that idea is Scripture tells us that even if you break just one law, you've broken the whole law. But the Pharisees were trying to make it livable. And so it was in that context as they're used to categorizing these laws that one of them said, hey, Jesus, what's the most important one? And in verse 29, Jesus answered, the most important is, and then he quotes from Deuteronomy chapter 6, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. The second is this, and he quotes from Leviticus. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. And so he tells, he answers, the question, what's the greatest commandment? Well, it's simple. Love God with everything you've got and love your neighbor as yourself. <laughs> it, it's not complicated. I won't say that it's always easy, but it is simple. Love God. Love people. Jesus said, your priorities in life are two. Love God and love people. If we could all live by those priorities, we would see broken families healed, fractured friendships mended, split churches reunited, racial conflict eased, and a divided nation might once again be one nation under God indivisible. 
and we might see liberty and justice for all. Love God. Love people. Not always easy, but understanding it is simple. The first thing he told them in response to that great question, love God. When he quoted from Deuteronomy chapter 6, he, he quoted the, what is called the Shema. And, and the Shema is, is a daily, it eventually became a daily prayer. It was of such great importance to the people of Israel that they, they prayed the Shema in the morning every day and in the evening every day. They would start their day and end their day by saying, the Lord, Yahweh, our God is one. Love the Lord your God with all of your heart, all of your soul, all of your mind, and all of your strength. So surely the scribe and the Pharisees were not surprised when Jesus said that was the most important commandment. It sums up man's relationship to God. It sums up our primary purpose for existing. And notice that he says, love the Lord your God with everything you've got. He says your heart, your soul, your mind, and your strength. Now those words meant, thing, meant something a little bit different to them than it did to uh, than they do to us, but regardless, either way, he's 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 talking about love God with every part of who you are. So we can look at those words as we understand them. Love the Lord your God with all of your heart. For us, the heart is the seat of emotion. And and he says, love God desperately and deeply and emotionally. There's nothing wrong with emotions in worship. There's nothing wrong with emotionally loving God. We, God made us emotional people. Nothing wrong with emotions. The problem comes when we think that's the only place that love lives. We think love is about a feeling. My youth director, when I was a kid, used to refer to it as that feeling you feel when you feel a feeling like you never felt before. We think love is emotional, that feeling. But you see, Jesus made it clear when he quoted from the Old Testament that loving God requires a whole lot more than feeling something. Love the Lord your God with all of your heart. But he then said all of your soul. The Greek word for soul is psyche. We use that word today to mean how we think and who we are. In other words, that part of you that makes you you. The part that's, that's not limited by the body, but the part of you that makes you who you are. Jesus says, love the Lord your God with all of your heart, deep heartfelt devotion. But also love him spiritually. 
with, with all of your being so that he becomes your priority in life. He says, love the Lord your God with all of your heart, all of your soul, and all of your mind. How do you love God with your mind? Well, what do you think about all day? What does your thought life look like? What do you read? What do you watch? What do you listen to? What are you thinking about most of the time? Are your thoughts expressions of love for God? Does your thought life even include him? Or is he just kind of relegated to an hour or so on Sunday? Jesus says, here's the most important thing for you. Top priority. Love the Lord your God with your heart, your psyche, your mind, and your strength. The word in the Old Testament in Deuteronomy is might. Love the Lord your God with all of your might. Give it your all. Love him un, unlimited. Love him with every part of who you are. That's the most important thing you do as a human being. You love him emotionally, spiritually, mentally, and physically, if we want to use that word, with all of your strength, every part of who you are. If you are one of those who likes to jot a note in your Bible or highlight in your Bible, some people don't like to do that, others do. If, if you're a highlighter kind of person, circle or highlight the word all in that verse. Because he says, love the Lord your God with all of your heart, all of your soul, all of your mind, all of your strength. It's repeated on purpose. The most important thing you can do and the most important person you can be is someone who fully, wholeheartedly, completely loves God. And it shows up in your business and it shows up in your thoughts and it shows up in how you treat each other and it shows up in, in every aspect of your life. Isn't it interesting that the top command in our religion is not about religion. The top command is not be good. It's not go to church. The top command is not keep the rules. The top command is love. It's all about how to relate to him. That's what he's most interested in. Because when you get that one right, all the do's and the don'ts wind up taking care of themselves. In John chapter 14 at verse 15, Jesus said, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. You see, we get the love, we get the relationship right. All the do's and don'ts wind up happening. When I love God with everything I am, I'm going to want to please him. 
So I, I don't obey him out of fear. I don't obey him to prove my holiness. But I wind up obeying him because I love him. And so Jesus says the most important one, the top one, is love God. But the second one is like unto it, it says in one of the other Gospels. The second one is, is right there with it. And you actually, in reality, you cannot have one without the other. We're told in 1 John that if you, if you say you love God but you don't love people, <laughs> you don't love God yet. That's a, that's a loose paraphrase. But he says the second one is like it. Love God and love people. We've seen a lot in this past year. But one thing that we've not seen enough of is real love for one another. Real love says what's best for you matters more than my convenience. Real love says I'm willing to make sacrifices to provide for your well-being. Real love says getting my way and being right are not nearly as important as taking care of you. How did we get here? How did we get to a place where everybody's mad all the time? Where pride is through the roof. I know what's right and I'm going to get my way. How did we get here? Well, it's obviously much more complicated than, than I'm qualified to sort out. But I do have one observation that helps explain it. Have you ever been to the restaurant Medieval Times? If you've ever been there, you know what it's like. And if not, you've probably seen a commercial or something. And the way it works is you show up at the restaurant and... They assign you a night. You walk in, they say, okay, you're for the red night. Okay. So you get your little flag, and every time they're, uh, while you're eating dinner in the stands up here, the knights are down on the floor, and they're competing. They start out with games and wind up in, a, in, in fights and jousts, and you've got your little red flag, and you're waving your red flag for your red night. Well, the other guy who came in behind you was assigned the blue knight. And so he's got his little blue flag and as the, the knights compete and they fight and he's waving his flag and he's yelling and screaming for the blue knight. That is, I think, a picture of our culture. We're obsessed with fighting. We fight for our rights. We want lawyers to fight for us. <laughs> we want people to fight on our side. We, everything's a fight. It's like we live at medieval times. We don't even elect people because they're wise or because they have good ideas or because they're good leaders. We elect people that we think can beat the other guys. Once elected, our political leaders forget that they're supposed to be serving us, solving problems, and preparing for the future. All they can think about is finding ways to win the next battle and to turn people against those other guys. And there we sit in the stands, 
yelling and screaming for our red night or our blue night to win. We watch the news station that best supports our side and proves that we were right all along. We argue and belittle people on social media who cheer for the wrong night. We love the drama of a fight. The bloodier the better. Listen. Listen to the relational emphasis in this verse. Jesus, what's the most important thing in life? What really matters? You love God with everything you've got. And you love your neighbor as yourself. In our attempt to win, we have forsaken what matters most. And that's a right relationship with God and a right relationship with one another. I think one of the reasons that it's hard for us to love our neighbor is because that would require us to set aside the us versus them mentality. If I love you as myself, I would have to see you in my camp instead of seeing you as an enemy. That's why Luke went on when he, when he presented uh, his perspective on this, when, when he told this story of Jesus telling the great commandments, Luke followed it up with the parable of the Good Samaritan. Somebody said, well, that's fine to love your neighbor, so who's my neighbor? So Jesus tells the story. And it turns out the neighbor is somebody in the other camp. The one that we always point our fingers at. And Jesus said, you love your neighbor. The same way you love yourself. Well, how do I love myself? I love myself so much, I'm going to take care of myself. I love myself so much, I'm going to protect myself. I love myself so much, I'm going to defend myself. I'm going to feed myself. I'm going to clothe myself. If I love my neighbor as I love myself, then I learn to protect, defend, love, serve, feed, clothe. I learn to sacrifice. Two or three times during this chaos, I have felt almost overwhelmed trying to figure out how to solve the problems. I felt a deep burden to make things better, but I didn't know what to do or where to begin. I eventually came to the conclusion that I can't solve all the problems. I can do something and I refuse to do nothing. I can't fix the world, but I can fix me. I can't resolve all the conflict, but I can work on my relationships. When the racial tension was at its highest, I got in touch with some African-American leaders whom I respect, and I met with each one of them individually.
And when the political turmoil was at its worst, I called a friend who probably always cancels out my vote. And I sat down with each of these men and I asked them three questions. First, I asked them, how does all this look from your point of view? Help me see life through your eyes. And then I asked them, can you help me see anything that I have done that made things worse? And then I asked them, what can I do to make things better? We had some wonderful conversations, some of which I will remember the rest of my life. My goal was not to have more meetings. My goal was to find a way to rebuild relationships. Friend, you can't solve all the problems in Washington, D.C. You can't stop the pandemic. You can't heal the sick. You can't reunite all the families and churches and communities who have experienced conflict during these hard times. But you can be salt and light. You can have an influence on your circle of family and friends. You can make a difference in your little corner of the world. Not only can you, but love compels you to. I encourage you this morning. If I were to steal a word from Paul, I would say, I beg of you, I implore you. Connect or reconnect to God in a loving relationship. And connect or reconnect to the people around you in loving relationships. Because see, if we were all to live by Jesus' priorities for us, our families would be stronger, our church would be healthier, our nation would be united, and we would be who we were intended to be. Earlier I told you it's not always easy, but it's simple. Life is hard. The world is confusing. But the solution is simple. Love is not always easy, but it's always worth it. Love God with every part of your being. And genuinely love the people around you.